Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the director of the We Be Imagining podcast. Our season one ended, at least as far as the recording, ended at the end of July. And for August, we're doing a special series of deep-going episodes on international issues. This particular episode will be focusing on the aroma protest. Today is Thursday, August 6, 2020. It's approximately 2.16 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'm here with... Ayantu Ayana. Ayantu, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I would love if you could kind of explain a little bit about who you are and what's your relationship to this topic. Thank you. Um, So my name is Ayantu and I'm a PhD student in archival studies. um, And I also work on history, on histories of social movements and uh, resistance in Ethiopia. Uh, My background is in political science, international relations, and communication studies. Um, I did a master's degree in 2013, only to realize that what really interested me most um, in the world is about bottom-up social transformation, about the grassroots, um, and about ordinary people existing at the intersections of different historical, cultural, and political systems, and who are working to challenge injustice and to refashion new structures uh, for life. Um, So I don't know if I should go further into my work. No, I definitely want to hear more about your work. I think that it's important in the context there's this is a very high temperature topic, as I know that you and I have discussed uh, outside of recording. Um, and one of the the allegations that's made against the Roma protesters is that this idea of being ahistorical mm-hmm. and um, the fact that you've looked into the state archives in Ethiopia and thinking through this, what is the role of this collective memory and who gets to decide and how does it get disseminated feels very uh, uh, prescient at this, at this moment. So maybe you could share a little bit about your research there. Um Yes. So so I came to the PhD, actually, after almost a decade of like working with youth and activists to raise up awareness about the oppressive state structures and the way that in Ethiopia and the way they facilitate intergenerational harm, um, including uh you know, the creation of this large Oromo diaspora and Ethiopian diaspora in, in many cases. Um, you know, this diaspora was produced by a conf- a confluence of local and global systems that created and exasperate oppressive conditions. Um, And one thing that I found in the years I spent trying to raise awareness about Oromos, not so much now because there's been so much work that was done, but, you know, like five years ago and before that, we just spent so much time just trying to get the basics out there that there is a people called Oromo, you know, even though there are more than 35 million people, they were kind of invisible to, you know, in the West at least, and trying to raise awareness about who the Oromo are, what their history with this, within the state is like, what their freedom movement uh, across the different generation is about and what they're trying to change um, in the state structure that's oppressive. And when I was trying to, you know, when I was doing this work, I always had the sense that there was this invisible wall behind which Oromos and other peoples of Ethiopia are hidden. And I couldn't figure out what this wall was at first, but I kept bumping up against it at every turn. Um, I think part of it is this narrative about Ethiopia that exists in the Western imagination, and even in the imagination of a lot of um, 
how Africans and Black people globally think about Ethiopia, that it's this place of freedom, it's this place of Black liberation. And so, and the Oromo are kind of, just kind of hidden in, you know, under all of that. And the archives themselves, the state archives do tell a master narrative. They tell the official history of the state. They tell elite history. They tell uh, Amhara, Tigray, uh, cultural um, heritage. They document um, people who have historically been privileged in this state um, since its creation with with the conquest that Menelik led. Um, And so that's how I ended up in archives, just trying to figure out where are the stories. We know stories of resistance exists because our families tell us, because we know them from the oral archives, but where are they in these other archives within the state? And um, for the most part, they they are not in the archives. They're not in the state archives, but there are um, other forms of archives I discovered. Like Haj Alu, for instance, his own knowledge, his own music, he was powerful because he contained the oral, you know, the oral history of the different generations of resistance against the Ethiopian state and its violence. Um, it's, it's interesting that you bring up oral history because, you know, I was just thinking about how Afana Romo, um, was only recently, uh, to my knowledge, and please correct me if I'm wrong, translated into a written form using, uh, Roman or Cyrillic letters. And so how do you, how much do you think that was that, that particularity is what mediated kind of this omission in the state archives? Um, you know, you know, Oromos historically have a very rich oral record keeping systems. Um, there are different, um, and these are rooted in in people, in communities, in stories. You know, in various forms. Um, when when the when they were conquered and the different groups of the Oromo were uh, incorporated into the state, there they you have the state narrative, the state way of archiving and state way of record keeping gets supplanted. And so that Oromo archive kind of goes underground and it gets hidden. And in, in, in some cases it's destroyed, but it's, it's retained um, itself there, you know? Um, and in terms of the state itself, the, the state pursued a project of socially engineering one Ethiopian people um, you know, who speak Amharic, who identify with the uh, mythologies of uh, Christian uh, Amhara Tigray culture and history. And that um, and that has meant that suppressing, erasing, supplanting this, this uh, meta-narrative onto existing histories, local histories, collective histories. And in terms of Afanoromo, the state's policy was to keep it uh, from use in public for a long time, both informally and formally, it was prevented from being state language. For instance, missionaries in the uh, early 1900s were not allowed to work in the Oromo areas in Afan Oromo. They, the only way they could gain permission to work in the Oromo areas is if they used Amharic. And so the state promoted, you know, this uh, um, language-wise and culture-wise Amharization of the conquered territories. And in 19... 19- 90s, uh, Afan Oromo with the federal system, Afan Oromo was uh, officially allowed to be used in the state. Um, 
you know, there was a lot of excitement because people have been working for decades in the 70s, in the 80s. Um, scholars have been trying to create scripts, trying to uh, make sure that this language can be put into into use. And so they've been doing a lot of preparation work. Uh, people like Lahun Gamta, he, he, he has published his reflection about what a difficult time he had to get that script, uh, to get the to get an Afan Oromo to English dictionary because people felt like if you're trying to grow Oromo language, if you're trying to make sure Oromo culture flourishes, then you are anti-Ethiopian. And this is a view that continues even today. You know, as the, the language as an entry point is an interesting way to explore some of these tensions and the criticisms of the Oromo protests because the two things that come to mind is that you know, everybody has an opinion. And one set of people is upset about the toppling of Haile Selassie's statue in London. Um, and this claim by some Aroma protesters that uh, Haile Selassie and the Amharas represented like settler, settler colonial rule. And people are saying that that's ahistorical. And another piece that they, they kind of point to in order to substantiate this claim is saying that, look, Afan Aroma would have been much more effective to use Amharic letters instead of English letters, which are doubling the length of the words because there's so many double letters. Um, and so I guess I'm a little bit thinking out loud with you, but I'm just curious mm-hmm, about what mm-hmm. was that decision around using the Cyrillic letters and how, how tied is it to this critique of, of Amhara rule as a dominant culture? Um, I mean, I think like people, if you look at the Oromo, the Oromo oral archives and you look at the songs and you look at the music and you look at the way uh, people, the, the proverbs and the poetry and you talk to elders, you know, they call it Sirna Gabruma, which is, you know, this, the system, this colonial system. And so people have resisted it. It's after conquest, there's been resistance. The stories of the resistance have not been told. That's the thing about Ethiopia. Not only have they not been told, they've been systematically erased from Ethiopians' public consciousness and memories. Um, and so people, because they're just now getting to be heard fully, people think that these stories of conquest, of uh, the violence that ensued, and then the unequal relationships that were built between the new, you know, the people who came into the new territories and established a whole different system that was oppressive and the locals who were there. Um, these are, you know, you know the 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 discourse over sta- toppling of statues over what are the legacies of conquerors colonialists is an ongoing and a global one in ethiopia we're a little late to the game um and there isn't a good you know widespread conversation happening on it you just see two camps one that's for toppling and another that thinks that this is heritage you shouldn't topple it you shouldn't you know and so on so it's it's a little bit where this is a conversation we need to have, you know. Uh, for instance, in Shagar, which is the land of the Tulama Oromo, uh, the the Galan and the Eka and the others, and um, they were erased from the ensuing history, not just where they kicked off the land to create the capital in the aftermath of, of conquest, but they were erased from its history, from its landscapes. The names of places were changed. Um, these, But yet, descendants of these groups exist, you know, and they're asking that 
that this this history be recognized. And so in that way, it's not unlike uh, the struggles of many indigenous people throughout the world who are saying, we're still here, we're still here, and your history excludes us and pretends we don't exist and erases us. Um, so a flashpoint is, is, is clearly the assassination of Hachalo and Dessa, and then the dispute between the government and the supporters of Hachalo who wanted him to be buried in what many people call Fin Finne instead of Addis Ababa, and then the decision to, to bury him in Ambo, which was seen as disrespectful by some, um, and then led to a situation in which um, Jarwar Muhammad was arrested. And, you know, there's a lot of coverage about that particular juncture. But to you, are, can you identify some key things that led to this moment and the level of outrage, um, even prior to Abi Ahmed and you know, what, what What do you feel like is important for people to know in order to kind of contextualize this? Because some of the, the Western media reports, although maybe this is unsurprising, it's kind of like, you know, Africans fighting. You know, <laughs> there's not a lot of, <laughs> really, right? And so, yeah. They're just like Afri- more black men, angry black people. Yeah. African Africans are not allowed complexity, as you know. Um, yeah, I mean, what people don't understand about Abi is that from the beginning, people were skeptical and they were, you know, I'm talking about uh, protesters, I'm talking about the grassroots, I'm talking about Oromos, and even generally, maybe Ethiopians in general were kind of like, okay, wow, like, here's some change, where will it go? So people were kind of in this wait and see, you know, moment. Yes, initially, there was a lot of euphoria, but it hasn't just been euphoria for the last two years, you know, things have been have been tense. Uh, for instance, people have called Abe uh, a national unifier, but without noting how he he took on discourses of empire that people have been challenging, and he resuscitated this um, you know denial of historical facts, uh, dismissal of historic grievances, um, and he his government has made it okay to deny that, uh, for instance, uh, massacres of different groups happen in the process of conquest um, and downplaying the statutes to those that commemorate those, uh, those events. And so you see a lot of attacks facilitated against the historical memory of marginalized people. So, so there was that. And then there was the creation of uh, Abi has spent uh, millions on. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, he spent millions on building and renovating the Menelik Palace and creating a memorialization of Menelik and other other emperors. And so kind of giving ode to elite rulers and their um, histories, which is common in Ethiopian history, and silencing the history of the marginalized people who are still fighting against the legacies of those rulers. So Abi has not been a unifier. He's been, he's taken, he's taken a very controversial position, not just in relation to Oromo history, but also the history of other groups. And, and I don't think a leader can can unify a country like Ethiopia by denying historical facts that have already been suppressed by the state and by dismissing um, historical concerns. I think these are issues that you need to 
treat very sensitively, that you need to acknowledge, that you need to create new narratives out of in which all of Ethiopia's people can see themselves. And I just don't think you can do that by, you know, by dismissing legitimate, you know, historical facts as victim narratives or victimhood narratives. And just like as an example of how Abe and many in his government view histo- like you know oppressive histories is Abe had given um, was giving a speech in which he compared the struggles of African American people and Jewish people and he was he was taking the history of Jewish people and saying look at them they've come so far and they've gotten ahead because they've dropped their victimhood mentality whereas African Americans remain marred in victimhood and they can't get ahead in life and this kind of you know narrative is exactly how he also talks about Oromo issues where he completely dismisses um, this huge archive of resistance movement as parochial, as uh, tribal, and um, has no appreciation for what the grassroots is asking for in terms of transforming these unequal relationships between the state and many indigenous people in that country. And just this is slightly off topic, but what you were saying just reminded me is um, so my father, a long time ago, he worked on this documentary about the, the Cuban intervention into Angola. And in the process, somehow somebody gave him this original like archive documents of um, the the original founders of ultimately what happened to be Israel, basically writing a letter to the Ethiopian government asking if they could have like an autonomous region for for Jewish people to flee to from from the rise of the Third Reich. Um, side topic, but just the, yeah, the, wow, wow. Um, and it's the original. I mean, it's a scan, but I'll, I'll share yeah. that with you. It's just an interesting. Oh my god! Point. Please do. Um, yeah, please do. And yeah, I'm I'm very interested now. I, I, I want to know how that conversation went and if they got a response. They got a, I mean, they got a response. It was one of, no, we're not taking on these these issues. But it's an interesting thing that like a lot of people don't know about. Um, yeah, but I'll forward that to you. Yes, too. And it's interesting, too, that Abe looks at uh, the Jewish people um, and he doesn't see how much uh, the Holocaust, its its memories, the event itself, how its aftermath has really deeply shaped people, individuals and collectives, the intergenerational trauma, and also the way people use that memory to mobilize in one way or another, you know. So his reading of it is completely um, dismissive and harmful. And, and inaccurate, actually, very inaccurate. Well, dismissive and harmful, but also kind of consistent, you know, with, with some other comments that are being made by the ruling class. Like, for example, I shared with you an episode that we did on Kashmir. Yes. And the, the Indian consul to New York in November had a video that went viral of a speech that he gave in the Upper West Side to yes. this group of people called Hindu Pandits, uh, which is a, a, demog- a racial or ethnic demographic from within Kashmir that had fled to India. And then he argued for the Israeli model of uh, return. And so it's kind of using like the Jewish history on a superficial level as a yes. vehicle to justify occupation and erasure of yes. the people there. Um, so it's kind of consistent with those, yeah. those narratives of empire. But Absolutely. what I wanted to... 
sorry to interrupt you, but what I wanted to ask you is you brought up how his narrative talks about the resistance movement as parochial, tribal. And I was wondering if you could speak about kind of the historical context in which demands for, for autonomy by the Oromo people um, also existed within solidarity of people with other ethnic groups who, you know, are demanding that their lang- their languages be be taught in their schools and to their children and that they also have autonomy. Because one of the allegations is that this is provincial because it's, it's, it's denying the rest of the nation just so that Oromo people can have a voice. But it seems like, you know, in reality, there's a lot more solidarity between other marginalized ethnic groups. Yes, this is such a good question. And I think it's a critical question that often gets missed. I think, uh, again, it's our history of uh, erasure, right? Erasing any resistance to the, the state project. Uh, after people um, like the Somalis and Sidamas and Oromos and many other groups were conquered, they didn't just like forget about the fact that they are now living under, uh, like, you know, a colonial rule, essentially. They, they've they resisted and they've fought. It's just that these stories are silenced. They're, first of all, they're not taught in Ethiopian schools. You don't learn about, you know, uh, the Sidama uh, who led many, many different uh, resistance movements against the state. And you don't even learn about the resistance to the conquest itself. You know, you don't learn about how each areas, each of the countries that were conquered and put into Ethiopia fiercely resisted. Um, And so if you don't come from a family that is in tune with these histories, um, you don't have access to it. So when you so you go through high school, you go through university and you don't know and you've never been taught. And so now all of a sudden you hear people talking about Oromo this, Sidama this. You think that they're just like you know, they're just reactionaries or something. But on the ground during the Oromo protests, like we have to remember that people were protesting in Oromia. It's not just Oromos who are protesting, although most of them are Oromos and we assume they're Oromos, but we haven't written, we haven't done the story of this protest. You know, I I have an oral history project that I haven't been able to get off the ground yet because I'm doing a billion things, but like, we really need to do, you know, how do you document a grassroots movement like this so that it doesn't just disappear into the ether and in another 20 years or in another 50 years, again, the state, you know, because it has all the power can just erase that memory. Like it hasn't happened at all. So the, you know, at the same time that the Oromo protests were going on, there were protests in the Amhara region, there were protests in, in, in other parts of you know, the South, the South, the Sidama, Ejeto were protesting. Uh, there's been many protests ongoing with the Sidama, for instance, because they were fighting. They've been fighting for 20 plus years for uh, to have their own you know, autonomous region. And they finally realized it. But it came with a lot of protests, a lot of mobilization, a lot of it grassroots and intergenerational. We saw elders on the street. We saw children on the street. So our biggest problem is there is not dedicated institutions that are documenting these histories so they just it just appears like so we lose you know we lose this bigger picture basically but you know if the oromo are invisible and there are 40 million people imagine how invisible the sidama and other groups in ethiopia are they're almost silenced and if you're looking at Ethiopia and you're just hearing Oromo, Amhara, Tigray, you might even think that this is a country of only three main groups. But there's so many groups of people who are leading these resistance movements and generations of them and who we just don't hear about. Um, so 
they are, they are, many of these groups are in the same positions or almost were 10 years ago. But all of them are coming out of 100 years of invisibility and silencing directly by the state. My hope is that in the future, like, um, I'm hoping that people will document these histories and also they'll document them uh, across ethnic groups uh, and document them across regions to look at how they're occurring at the same time, how they're feeding into each other and informing each other, how they differ and so on. Oh, so my question is, you know, given what you were saying that these that this this history of marginalized people in Ethiopia is not taught in taught in the schools, um, you know, there may be people focused, you know, solely on the Battle of Adwa and these state narratives. What and also knowing the limitations of American uh, postgraduate education, how did you become radicalized and like thinking um, thinking through Oromo oral histories, which are not new, but through this kind of formalized archival studies process? What was that? What was your moment of like radicalization, like intellectually, and how did you enter into this research? Oh my God, I have to say that Black studies saved me, first of all, um, because I I didn't go to a great undergraduate school, um, but somewhere somehow I discovered Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks. Um, this is when I was very young. I'm talking like 19, you know. Uh, 18. And I I just started reading little by little. I discovered sociology my senior year of high school and just like became really fascinated with the idea of social structure and agency. And even though like I didn't, you know, I didn't fully comprehend uh, what what agency versus structure means, I was hooked. And so when I went to under, you know, undergrad, I kept reading. I have to say that uh, unfortunately, a lot of what I know doesn't come from being in the classroom. Um, although some of it does. But in terms of like the Oromo and the Ethiopia stuff, I've really had to do a lot of reading on my own. And then later on, I came to learn of the Oromo Studies Association. Um, There was a lot of people in there who were themselves activists and then, you know, scholars and became activist scholars. I was mentored by them, people like Kue Kumsa. Kue Kumsa is someone who was put in prison by the Derg for, you know, being an Oromo journalist and for writing in Afan Oromo and for advocating for Oromo people. She, you know, she was in prison for almost a decade, ended up leaving, you know, um, being exiled and ended up raising her children in Canada. And she ended up going to going back to school, uh, becoming a professor and writing a lot. So she does a lot of advocacy. She does a lot of scholarship. So I learned a lot from her and I've been mentored by her. I've been mentored by Somali elders who are also working on archives and memory and trying to figure out how do you preserve a people's history when the people themselves have been dispersed and, and the structure that holds them together has been broken. Um, so it comes from I've been I've been really fortunate to have really good humane mentorship. Um, I've been, I've really I've really been um, I feel like Indigenous people's struggles, their histories, um, has been really useful to me to ground me in a global understanding of what's happening to the Oromo and helping me realize that it's not new, it's not different, it's not unique. It's part of a global, you know, what what the Oromo are facing is part of a global um, issue. Um, and it's that has been really comforting to me. Yeah. Oh, I'm Thank so sorry. You. Of oh, course, let me add. And of course, of course, I cannot, you know, 
I feel like my first and most important lessons in 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 Oromo in Oromo history and Oromo culture comes from Oromo music. I remember being four years old and sitting, you know, near my father as him as him and his friends are listening to Umar Suleiman and other Oromo musicians, um, and that was you know, that was very crucial to me. And my love for Oromo mu music goes back to that moment of being four years old, but it also goes back to all that I've learned. Like Hach Alu, for instance, his music, uh, you know, I was constantly looking at his lyrics, what they mean, asking my father, asking, you know, other people who I know. And I've, I've, I've learned to see Oromo music as a resource itself. Like, who is Tufa Muna? You know, I like used to never know who Tufa Muna was. Um, later on, I learned because of Hachalu, Tufamuna is one of the Oromo elders who resisted fiercely Menelik's um, conquest. And Menelik responded by building his palace in on Tufamuna's land, his sacred ground, you know? So, yeah. No, I was just going to say thank you for making that connection between Black studies and Oromo history. I think one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is that you know, growing up, my my father is a, a Romo, and I'm so I grew up like learning about the culture and the history, and I, you know, I follow generally in the news. And for a lot of my Black American friends, up until very very recently, they had no idea about anything that was going on in Ethiopia. Right. People's most common Western references, although now that I've gotten older, it's not as bad. I guess because people don't have cable, is feed the children. Most people have no idea anything. They're like huts, like there's just yep. nothing else. <laughs> but I think something very interesting is that, particularly in Minnesota, and then later in D.C. and Virginia that a lot of the, the the young people leading the Black Lives Matter protests were Oromo. And then many of them ultimately led this huge outpouring in support of the Oromo protests. And then there was even counter protests. And so how do you kind of historically situate this connection in the diaspora and the level of influence it's, it's having? I mean, maybe this is subjective to me feeling a part of this generation, but I feel like right now is the most that I see just, and also maybe because so many people are on social media, it just feels like there's a, such a high, high level of involvement among many people who are, you know, first generation and may only be familiar through their listening to their parents' stories. Right, right. Okay, so yeah, this is a very important question and I want to touch on um, three things. So the first is that, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, Oromo journalists in the 80s were prevented from uh, working on Afan Oromo in their country. So they were exiled, they were jailed, some of them were killed. And then the same thing happened in the 70s and the same thing happened in the 90s. And now the same thing is happening. Lots of Oromo journalists are now in in jail. And this is an example of how Oromos are prevented from actually establishing and maintaining media institutions, civil society institutions, and other academic institutions and different kind of, uh, you know, institutions that could speak about the Oromo issue from within. So a lot of Oromo advocacy and a lot of Oromo activism has been people, has been done outside of the country uh, by people who've run away from government persecution for the most part. And so um, what we've seen diaspora politics be about until, you know, 
until maybe the last uh, six or so years is before that it was mostly like older people uh, and people, you know, in their late 40s and 50s onwards. And then because people who like had a life in Ethiopia, who were trying to fight in Ethiopia, were then exiled and then kept fighting after they left. So what we see recently, especially this round, is a lot of young people are taking up the they're taking up the movement. And I think it's because when Haj Alu was killed and and then like, you know, Jawar and uh, Bakala and all of these people were imprisoned, the older generation was kind of like in shock and was just kind of like, whoa, what's happening? Where the youth, they just jumped into action and like suddenly you have protests all over the place. And it's because they've already been organizing with, with you know, BLM and they know how to respond to government clampdown. They know how to respond to injustice. Um, so I feel like they connect deeply with uh, the Oromo movement because of, you know, how within BLM they're, they're challenging structures, uh, intergenerational violence, they're, uh, you know, very persistent uh, structures of oppression, they're challenging white supremacy, and they can connect. Uh, and it's, it's ironic that a lot of them are coming from BLM to Oromo protests rather than the other way around. Although that, that, that also is happening, like, you know, now we have Oromo protest people who are, you know, looking into BLM and who are supporting BLM. Um, in terms of the movements themselves, obviously, they come from very different uh, political contexts, very different historical contexts. Uh, and and yet uh, the youth do see some interconnections there um, in terms of what are being fought for, which is freedom and liberation and justice and the right to to live as you are without having, you know, without having to be worried about being killed. Like mass incarceration is a problem for, you know, in America for black people and brown people. And uh, mass incarceration has always been the state's tool of oppressing Oromos in Ethiopia. So there's a lot of uh, cross-cutting issues that connect connect the two movements. Um, but I'm of the view that, you know, there has to be a real engagement and exchange and solidarity um, develops and is maintained over time. And I think that we have to be very careful of how um, we're relating to BLM, because with BLM, one thing that I've seen is you know, different, not not with Oromos, but like what I've seen in different contexts is somebody declaring X life matters or Y lives matters. Um, but like Black Lives Matter comes comes out of a very particular um, need and history. So I feel like we also need to really honor that and make sure that what we're what we're doing is creating solidarity and not just reappropriating slogans or language or approaches. No, exactly. I mean, one of the, I don't know how particular this is to, to my family and maybe like the immigration laws in the 80s and 90s that prioritize like people with different kind of like, uh, what are they called? Exceptional, exceptional skill visas and things like this. Mm -hmm. But there definitely was, you know, even though cornrows comes from Ethiopia, like if, if my cousins were seen to have cornrows, they say, Dorie, like you acting yeah. gangster, yeah. like don't do too much of this and that. <laughs> And just it's fascinating to me. It had to be the youth because I feel like there's so much anti-blackness 
at yes. least from what I anecdotally observed in my like Aromo Ethiopian like uh, New York City community, that this is a real like disruption and then i just also wonder on the flip side i think what you said is really important that this has to this has to be real ongoing meaningful engagement yeah. and i just wonder how much you know what's so exciting to me about blm or particularly the justice for george floyd protests is that when it really popped off in new york it just felt so raw there was no signs and yeah. to me that was actually comforting because it wasn't initially getting co-opted by any pre-existing organization and it's outstripped that capacity but at the same time, you know, there's not an easy, there are parallels, but it's a different political context, as you said. And I wonder how much room there is to um, kind of negotiate and discuss what it means to have an internationalist ethos where we don't just flatten everybody into the same thing, just add the free aroma next to the free Palestine sign or something. Right, right. No, and I think, yeah. And I think like with, with the youth, there's a lot of space for dialogue and conversation and um, study groups um, and and like really looking doing analysis because I think part of part of why BLM is so rich is that there's a lot of artists there's a lot of historians anthropologists and sociologists and you know critical race theory uh, people who are doing all people who are bringing different lenses to to the to the movement and who are analyzing different um, structures and how they are bearing upon black women for instance or trans women for instance trans people in general um, so there's a lot of I feel like, well, first I see the B, you know, I see BLM as an uh, as part of this lineage of very rich grassroots black organizing in this country, and so and that that history, including the civil rights movement, for instance, I don't just mean in its formal sense, but there was a lot of informal study groups, a lot of like paying attention to ideas, trying to ensure that the world that you're fighting for, you're also practicing now. If you're fighting for justice, then your means have to be just in terms of how you organize and how you how you treat people within those, you know, within that movement. Um, so I feel like there's a lot actually to be learned from this and other social movements for for the youth here uh, and also for, for the youth who are actually protesting on the ground in Ethiopia. And so, you know, I think that's that's really important. And one of the things is that there's there's many allegations against our Romo protesters. And, you know, for me, it's it's. It's instinctually I reject this information, but I think that in order to do really good coverage and, and, and you know, it's important to take seriously these level of claims as some people are making comparisons to sections of the Oromo protests or some even more particularly the Oromo Liberation Army and comparing them to the Rwandan Interhamway. And so I remember when we spoke earlier that you were saying that a lot of your family is from Shashamani and Shashamani in particular has been raised as an example where they're saying that there were groups of outside agitators that came and were targeting um, both people of other ethnic groups and, and, and religions, but also people who are Oromo but are not Muslim. And so I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit about what you're hearing from your family back home and the way that aligns or, or does not with, with that kind of narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really tragic because people have been killed. Um, 
four people were killed in Chachamane um, and in other places people were killed. They, they were really brutally attacked. The properties were burned down, but uh, people's houses were burned down. So there, there's a lot of real tragedy, right? And people have also um, taken the tragedy and, you know, it's, what I've seen is this launching of a disinformation campaign against protesters, which has been ongoing, but especially in the aftermath of these attacks. Um, but let me just speak first to like give a little context about this movement and how it's, you know, how it, the different ways it's been attacked. So from 2014 to 2018, the Oromo youth, <coughs> sorry. Oromo Youth led a largely peaceful protest movement um, in which people from every area of Oromia participated. Thousands of people were injured, imprisoned, and killed. Um, and yet the protests continued. And in 2018, they led to a kind of change of prime minister. And, and then so people were just in, in anticipation of free and fair elections and like kind of moving into a new, a new society that doesn't you know, that doesn't kill and torture and harass. One thing that has been consistent throughout the protests of 2014 to 18 um, is that protesters were attacked. You know, they were called vi vi violent mobs. They were, back then they were mostly targeted by regime, by the EPRD, FTPLF supporters um, and the government itself. But then after 2018, we actually saw an uptick in in, 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 in how they were being demonized, um, narratives of them as mobs, violent gangs, and quote-unquote rebels without a cause, um, which is what Ethiopian journalists and politician Iskander Nega has consistently called them from 2018. I have archives and archives of this from him and others. And, you know, it's weird how much this protest movement, this mass grassroots movement that helped usher in, along with others, helped usher in the change that brought uh, Abiy Ahmed to power has then been like the source. It's been scapegoated essentially, you know, and some of it is targeted attacks by people who want to discredit the movement because the movement itself causes a challenge to consolidation of power. The movement and, it, and its demands call for transformation where there's a lot of interest in consolidation of power in, you know, in the hands of people who already are holding it. Um, and recently we've seen a lot of attacks against uh, very systematic anti-Oromo, anti-youth, uh, anti-Oromo protests on coming from government officials, uh, opposition parties like the Balderas. We've seen uh, very anti-Oromo things being aired just commonly now on uh, FM radios and state TV. And so just to kind of give a, you know, an idea of how all of this is playing out, um, the, the real tragedy of the people who've been victimized and the fact that they they need and deserve justice um, has been ignored, that the government has not investigated these, these perpetrators and made clear who they are, uh, has allowed basically the protest movement to be scapegoated as categorically and for Oromo youth to categorically be scapegoated. And because the government has an interest in suppressing these protests, I believe that they are intentionally allowing this ambiguity and disinformation to fill the space rather than clarifying who are these, who are these gangs of 
perpetrators who have come into communities almost immediately after the assassination was announced. They were prepared, they had vehicles, they had gasoline, they went around burning and they knew where to burn. In many cases, they were burning indiscriminately, but they were also targeting specific places. Now, in the aftermath of the assassination and these and 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 the and the killings and also the property being destroyed, when I talk to family, what they're saying is that they are they are living basically in a kind of feeling under siege because the same police who did not protect people from attacks are now coming around and indiscriminately arresting everybody. And so even in Shashamane alone, and Shashamane is not a big town, I, I don't have a, like a population figure now, but almost 25,000 people have been arrested in this one town. So it tells you the scale of the the arrests. These are not arrests where you're being taken away because you participated in these attacks. It's literally like somebody, I could be your neighbor, I don't like you for whatever reason, and I say to the police, you know, Khadija participated, or, oh, do you know Ayantu participated, and boom, you're in in jail. And at the same time, at the local level, the government is using it to arrest anybody that does not agree with its um, agenda and who could oppose it. So they've used this violence as a cover, creating two sets of victims on the ground, the people who were actually attacked and whom the police failed to protect and who are you know, you can imagine the kind of fear they're living in. And now you have the Oromo families whose kids and, you know, whose in, in, in many cases, other people of their families have been arrested. And, and they are also innocent because they didn't participate in in this madness. So you have, you know, the government is really creating very dangerous conditions on the local level that increases animosity, distrust, and a sense of being under siege from all sides. And just from at a distance, when I think of Sheshamani, I think of the Rastafarians who were who were given given this space. Is there any significance um, to Sheshamani specifically being targeted, or or is that just coincidental? Um, yes. Yeah, so the so yes, the Rasta community in uh, Shashamane is, has been there for a long time. I believe they've been there since the 1940s. Um, they were given land there by Haile Selassie. Um, and also Shashamane, during the Oromo protests, Shashamane emerged as one of the key epicenters of the protests. So people went out uh, in mass and they kept going out. And so it's it's the it's a it's one of the epicenters uh like ambo shashamane is the other epicenter um so you know i i'm not a conspiracy theorist i don't believe that we should spread uh information that we have not verified but my my sense is that this area is being targeted specifically um because the movement in that area is very strong yeah is there any um, clear articulated like solidarity between Rastafarians in Sheshamani and the Aroma protesters? In general, um, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I I haven't seen anything. The one thing with you know the Rastafarian community there is that it's the way they were brought into the area, right? Um, Haile Selassie gave this land to them that was. Uh, 
it, well, it's conquered land. It's stolen land, you know? So the, the Rastafarians come and they are placed there by the emperor. So it's a state-facilitated state process rather than a people-to-people -people process. So there's been a lot of contestations and a lot of um, ongoing... I don't want to call them conflicts. I would like to call them contestations because I think these are these are ongoing discussions between people. Um, I'm not sure uh, how how the local communities have tried to resolve this on their own because these are people who've been there with each other for a long time, you know, uh, four decades or so. Um, but the nature, you know, it's also the nature of the urban versus rural areas in Ethiopia. The the what we now have, the urban cities were actually garrison towns where the settler soldiers lived. And so that relationship, that unequal relationship between the rural and the the local people who live there and then the people who move there is very tenuous. And uh, that relationship has not been negotiated uh, in a way that encourages mutual recognition, mutual support, mutual um, understanding historically and contemporarily. This is not to say that people are not living, that people are living in constant conflict um, or that people don't support each other. Obviously they do. Thank you. So I have about, I have about two more questions. The first one, I apologize for my very uh, anglicized pronunciation. But um, from what I understand, Kiro, like it literally translated into English means single unmarried man. And I know that there is like a complementicaria, like women who are leading in the movement. But Kiro is the one that's like largely reported as if to represent the majority of protesters. And I was wondering if you could shed light on kind of the this gendered and age specific kind of descriptor. Like what is the significance of that and what does it because there's a way in which it becomes demonized as immature, given that it represents, it's saying that people are, there's some also accusations that people are capitalizing on a, a level of economic alienation by young men who are kind of, like you said, rebels without a cause. Um, but I'm wondering, given that's a self-descriptor, what, what does this say about kind of the gendered politics of the Aroma protest as self-described? Um, this is so important because... So Kero, uh, you know, Kero is for, for men and Kare is for women. And you're right, it just means youth and it means youth of a particular age group. You know, traditionally, Oromo society is divided into these age, age sets and into these different sectors of the society that do different things to ensure the well-being and to protect the society. And Kero and Kare are, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the vanguards of the society. If there's an injustice, if they're, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the ones that challenge it and that transform it. Uh, in terms of how uh, the Kero movement has been covered, I feel like even though the women are right there, they're, they're often um, forgotten about. And there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that these are men, that these are young men. Um, and part of it is this kind of, one, uh, that this is young men have been, so you have the government and you have some opposition groups and diaspora media that have specifically select, emphasized the maleness of this movement because it's easier to depict this mass group of a whole generation of men um, as a threat. And they're drawing upon very old, uh, imagine, you know, history of how the Oromo have 
been depicted as uh, destroyers, you know, people who um, create chaos. So this this imagination is already very in there in the psyche of a, an average Ethiopian. And these opposition groups have drawn on that to target this movement as an all-male movement, you know. And, um, and in the other sense, when this movement is covered, and it hasn't received a lot of coverage, by the way, because it's a grassroots movement, and there isn't like one person you can say, this is the leader, and that's the nature of what complicates how we cover and think about this movement, is that there's been a lot of misrepresentations. The women who are in the movement have been erased, but the women have been a very important part of the movement. They're developing the the ideas around it. The um, how we, for instance, her song Kaik Ero. She was she's an Oromo artist who was jailed under TPLF. She was tortured. She you know she underwent all of these things, but she's erased. People like Sena Solomon. She was part of the protests, uh, and she was also a musician. So there's a lot of erasure of women out of this movement. Um, and again, like I was saying earlier, we really need to figure out how we're going, how we ensure that in the in the final archive of this movement, we do not lose the voices and the stories of the women because they have been dealt a particularly difficult hand. When when they're arrested, they're often, you know, they're assaulted in particular ways because they're women. And so their situation is is very uh is very precarious but also they're articulating the movement in many cases in ways that are very widespread wide ranging and very inclusive um so when we have the final analysis of what this movement meant to this to this generation um I'm, it's really, it's my biggest thing to make sure that we don't lose the voices of the women. Um, and then I just want to say that, you know, people have tried to portray this movement as a violent movement. I don't think this movement is a violent movement. I don't think it needs to be, because when I talk to people on the ground, what they tell me is that this is a successful movement. This is a powerful movement. It's a peaceful movement. And they know because they were able to, to you know, uh, create a change before in 2018, they know that they can do it peacefully and they've done it. Um, I think people who cause violence are those who don't think that their aims are, are just and are those who don't believe that they will get to uh, realize their goals. But from what I see, like there are closing roads, they are, um, and like, I really look at me, I'm also racing the women. And uh, usually I use Ero as as kind of like for both, but I realize that's not always the case. But that th this movement of people, they understand their power. They're drawing deeply into a reservoir of Oromo archive of resistance, Oromo music, and they they they're fighting for a new change. Their concerns now are how do we ensure that this movement does not only ch result in regime change, but it actually improves the conditions of our lives. It gets rid of the the structures that feed off of and promote homophobia, and that just allow us to live into a new future. And they want democracy. In a democracy, the Oromo protesters have a lot to gain. It is those who want to consolidate power and who want to silence and who do not want democracy, who are, you know, who are championing the spread of disinformation and who are trying to undermine this movement.
No, that's very important. And it kind of leads into my last question. But before I go there, you said something earlier about if we don't address these big issues and then we recreate the prevailing norms. And so, you know, again, I, you know, my, I'm one person, everything is anecdotal. The last time I went back to Ethiopia was 2009. And I come from like a very deeply religious, conservative Muslim family. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I've never been married, but I already had kids and I, but I came by myself and they all, my family, they wanted to eat together. And I went out and I went to go smoke a cigarette and go to the pool hall. Um, and they almost like had a panic attack and died about that. Um, <laughs> And I just wonder, and then on the flip side, I also hung out with a lot of people who were probably more towards the ruling class and like partying and drinking and had a much more like parasitic relation. It was like full freedom, but very, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Hedonistic. All right. Um, and not a lot of in between. So I'm just curious within the Aroma protest movement itself, how much is there being a discussion beyond just the... I don't want to, beyond the larger political aim is kind of the wrong wording, but like around these questions of, of, of sexuality, of gender, of women's rights, of, 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 of kind of people's relationships to each other, um, as a part of like fighting for this new world. Um, I think the, so I was talking to someone yesterday and it's funny because he was explaining settler colonialism to me. This is a documentary maker. He doesn't, he hasn't studied social theory or anything, but he was explaining to me, he was saying, you know, he has given his child uh, an Oromo. He just had a baby. He was saying like he has given his child an Oromo name and that he feels that he feels the, the, the state's onslaught of attacks on Oromo narratives very personally. And he's like, how do I ensure that my kid knows uh, authentic Oromo history, not the, the version that the state tries to tell about the Oromo? And he, he was talking to me about how do we ensure that the histories of the protests uh, are written and are told from the perspective of those who who participated in it, not just those who weaponize it or who make use of it. So I, for, for me, I think people are thinking about these questions because when they're fighting for... Uh, when they're on the street fighting land grab, they're not just fighting land grab, you know, they're fighting alienation, cultural alienation, political alienation. They're fighting against a system that tells them that it is, you know, that it is not possible to exist as Oromos on the land. Uh, how much people are discussing gender and sexuality? Honestly, it's just anecdotal. I'm not sure. What I know in the diaspora though, um, especially this this group of youth who are now organizing with BLM is that they are discussing gender. They are um, discussing how, uh, you know, how this, you know, many Ethiopian communities, and this is the, the case for Oromos, tend to be conservative, but the youth aren't. They come from a different uh, space culturally, they, but they're still in these families and in these communities. So there's a lot of negotiation, uh, negotiating that has to happen. Um, what I've found um, in my own family is my mother used to insist that I stay out of, you know, Ethiopia stuff, stay out of Oromo stuff. She's like, there's no future in it. All you'll do is make lots of enemies and it won't get anywhere. And then you'll just be very frustrated. Whereas now she she like really pays attention to the stuff I'm writing. She's encouraging me. And 
we're talking a lot more about, you know, sexism and how people don't listen to women. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, discussions within the community a lot better than I, I saw before. And also because the movement uh, only brought uh, regime change in 2018 and failed to bring the kind of liber liberatory space that almost were seeking, people are now a lot more open to looking at what did we fail? Where did the leaders fail? Where did we fail as a community? Why didn't our movement uh, transform into more freedom for everyone? And so people are looking more, even with my father, you know, I've been engaged in an ongoing you know, conversation with my father about Oromo things for, for as long as I remember. And recently we were talking about this culture in Ethiopia of zero-sum game. Either Damhara takes state power and they oppress everyone else, or the Tigrayans take state power and they oppress everyone else, or the Oromo takes state, you know. Well, the Oromo structurally cannot. Um, they can be oppressive, yes, individual Oromos can be oppressive, but Oromos can, will, will have to support a dictatorship at their own uh, peril, and that's what they're refusing to do. But I was talking to my father about how we transform this kinds of culture of winner takes all and everyone is a loser, and what happens to the losers then is killing and jailing and exile, and we're talking about how how do you change this? How, what does reconciliation looks like? Who's in charge of reconciliation? And my father was basically like, he's like, I think we've, he's like, I think we've taken the struggle as far as we can. And I think it's your generation's responsibility now. Yeah. Thank you. So I, my last question, and I'm going to wrap up because I know we're like past the hour point now, is just, um, where do you see this going? You know, like where Hachalo has been a flashpoint moment um, and what do you kind of see as the opening for possibilities? And, you know, where do you kind of locate hope in the situation? I think that, you know, what we've seen is that a grassroots protest movement can create regime change, but the danger is always that the most conservative elements within society can step into that and weaponize it and and then create even more oppressive conditions. So I think uh, people are demanding the release of political prisoners and a, a discussion like Ethiopians need to have, and this includes Oromos, need to have a reckoning why we continue to perpetuate these harmful cycles, you know, generation after generation. My grandfather was resisting this empire and my father has spent his whole life resisting it. And now I'm, I'm resisting it. My generation is resisting it. Are we just going to continue passing on these very toxic dynamics, both at the very small household levels where we perpetuate uh, very harmful practices, but also at the national level. I'm, this moment, I feel like it's a moment of crisis, but I think it presents opportunity for a real reckoning and for us to think about what kind of society do we want to create? Do we want to continue creating a society where groups of people just kill each other, you know, indiscriminately and, you know, until, what, the end of the world? Or are we going to face up to the real challenges of our time and of our country and recognize the harms that we create and break out of some of the same patterns? Can we get 
the different political actors in that space to share power, but also to share power, not just among themselves, but also to share power with traditional knowledge custodians and, and holders of power, to share power with the youth, to create, to allow the creation of spaces, civil society spaces, grassroots spaces, media spaces, where these conversations can unfold. I don't think that political leaders are going to create a transformed Ethiopia. They are not positioned to do so and they cannot do so. I think it's it's people engaged from the grassroots at all levels who can bring about that kind of transformation. Thank you. That's it for my questions. I just want to give you an opportunity if there's anything else that you would like to add about your work or that you feel like it's important for our listeners to hear. Um, I don't know. I think we covered a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you for having me.